Hello, STEM Nation. Jeff here, and welcome to episode number 71 of STEM on Fire, where we interview practicing professionals in the area of science, technology, engineering, and math to help guide students interested in STEM careers. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Now let's get fired up today with our guest, Elizabeth, and I hope our chat will help ignite your passion towards a STEM career. Elizabeth earned a PhD in chemical and biomolecular engineering from John Hopkins University and is an assistant professor in chemical engineering at the University of Washington and focused on nanotechnology and also some radiology, which we will get into. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Fill in any gaps and share a bit of your personal life. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to be on the podcast today and, and looking forward to an interesting discussion. Um, I want to start off by saying that uh, while I did my PhD in engineering and did my undergraduate degree in engineering, I didn't always know I wanted to go into engineering. In high school, I had explored journalism and before that had grown up wanting to be a vet. Um, but as I had an increase in awareness of a neurological disease that was afflicting my family at the time and a slow realization uh, during that time in high school that medicine and science weren't really doing enough or I felt like they weren't doing enough to really understand the disease or treat the disease that was afflicting my family. Engineering became really appealing to me because it was always something that was presented um, as a way of solving problems. So I know oftentimes people think they have to have everything figured out um, at a really early age. Um, and I can say that um, certainly going into engineering, even though that's what I've now spent my career doing after training, um, wasn't necessarily my first my first stopping point. Thanks for that, Elizabeth. So it sounds like maybe you, you went into chemical and biomolecular engineering based upon the neurological disease that was affecting um, uh, people in your family. So why did you go chemical engineering, biomolecular engineering, as opposed to becoming a, a doctor? I actually considered being a doctor um, for a while. When I was applying to graduate schools, I applied to both um, medical programs as well as PhD programs, and then the combination of the MD and PhD programs. And I actually had a really good mentor at the time who sat me down one day and said, well, you know, do you really know what you're getting into by applying to an MD and a PhD and doing both? And I said, well, no, not really, because I didn't know anybody at the time who had both of those degrees. And he told me that, you know, if I really wanted to treat people, um, then a medical degree was necessary. But if I didn't actually want to be in a room with a person trying to treat their disease real time, then a medical degree wasn't really going to be useful for me. And I could do medically relevant research by just getting a PhD. And so I actually backed away from doing the medical degree because I didn't have necessarily an interest of directly treating people um, in like a clinic space or in an operating room. I wanted to be more um, behind the scenes in that. I wanted to be more at the understanding of why the diseases occur in the first place and finding better ways to provide tools and technologies to doctors to help them treat those disease, um, those diseases. And that was just my own personal um, level of interest and engagement. I certainly like helping people, but I like to kind of be more behind the scenes um, in doing that. And so chemical engineering, when I first was made aware of chemical engineering, it was when I was in high school and I had several family members who were chemical engineers. And I always heard from them kind of offhand that it was the hardest degree you could do, that it was just a really difficult degree. And that kind of was inspiring to me because I liked challenges and I liked take, taking on very difficult things. And so I became aware of the degree through them and sort of out of stubbornness was like, okay, if this is a hard degree, then I'm just going to go try and do it. 
And as I started into the degree, I really learned that chemical engineering itself is a fairly broad engineering degree because it requires fundamental understanding of math and physics and chemistry. It's a misnomer a lot of times that people think of chemical engineering as mainly a chemistry, applied chemistry degree. We actually spend a lot more time doing math and physics um, as, you know, as we do chemistry and even more so now um, biology. And so having that very fundamental understanding of all these different math science fields and being able to put them into applied form and really complex systems was really appealing to me. And what was also interesting about that is when you learn all these fundamentals of math and physics and chemistry and how to take them and apply them into very complex problems, that becomes very adaptable. And so you can take those understandings that you've developed in the physics and math and chemistry, and for me it was biology as well, and apply those to very complex products or complex processes. And that applies to human health. Um, and that applies to medicine. And so I found that it was a very nice um, training path to then go into medicine and to go into health-related applications because of the fact that we have to have a basic understanding and a really solid fundamental understanding of a lot of the underlying principles that govern physiology and govern how the human body works and, and especially um, govern how you might then begin thinking about treating those diseases that can afflict the human body. So Elizabeth, can you go into the, the biomolecular aspect and how you're applying nanotechnology and how radiology uh, plays into the whole, into your whole background and what you're doing today? Yeah. So I have an appointment um, in the radiology department at the University of Washington, and that seems to be a bit of a unique aspect for a chemical engineer. And one of the reasons that that um, came to be is because we do a lot of imaging-based work in using nanotechnology to understand how the brain in particular changes in response to an injury or a disease. And through that imaging, we're trying to capture information about how, for instance, cells in the brain or proteins or the, the brain itself actually changes in how it functions, changes in its structure, and how that then impacts the whole being in which that brain exists. And so we use nanotechnology kind of as a probe of the environment um, that it exists in. So we'll, we'll put these um, nanoparticle-based systems into brain tissue, living brain tissue, for instance, and we'll look at how those nanoparticles interact with the environment that it's in. And we'll get information out of those interactions and we'll do our best to correlate that information to biological information like how RNA or DNA or proteins or cells are being expressed or are behaving. And through that, we're ideally getting a lot more insights into kind of the entire scale of processes that are taking place in the brain when you have an injury going on. And so we're looking from the molecular scale all the way up to the whole brain scale and that's where that engineering mentality can really be beneficial because you're always thinking as an engineer, how do I take something and make it relevant and make it impactful and make it useful to as many people as possible? And so you're always thinking about scale when you're thinking about engineering. And we're just doing this now in the context um, of the brain. And nanotechnology is just one of our tools in which we can uh, probe some of those questions about how that brain changes when you have a, an injury taking place. So Elizabeth, it sounds like if, if you're really interested in medicine, you don't have to be go go become a doctor. You can go the engineering route like you did with chemical engineering, biomolecular engineering, and then you know applying nanotechnology. 
uh, which is very interesting. I didn't really realize that. I'd never really internalized that. So thanks for bringing that out. And, you know, as a professor, and you're dealing with students probably on a regular basis, what are the types of questions that you get that you think would be relevant for STEM Nation? Yeah, so I'm glad you bring this up because I do um, field questions almost weekly about um, particularly where engineers can have impact and, and in the area of medicine and health. And one of the first things that I think um, often comes up is, well, what degree should I get? I mean, when I talk with high school students or when I talk with um, freshman students who haven't picked a major um, in college, many times they're like, well, do I need to get a biomedical engineering degree? Or do I need to get a bioengineering degree? Or what if I'm interested in mechanical or electrical engineering? And in reality, all of those majors have very important roles to play in the health and medicine field. So when we think about how bones fracture or when we think about how muscles are flexible or tendons operate, that's a very mechanical process in a lot of ways. And that's just one example um, of how potentially coming from a mechanical engineering perspective might be useful to understanding things like osteoporosis um, or how joints um, you know, become inflamed or become um, no longer functional or how you might get, for instance, an ultrasound wave if you're trying to image through bone, through the actual bone, um, these are all very important questions that are just an example of some of the things that mechanical engineers have brought to the medical field. And that can be applied to chemical engineers who've looked a lot at how drug delivery, um, so the ability to get drugs to a certain site of interest in the body are designed better or can be made more effective or electrical engineers who, you know, study, for example, how um, the heart regulates itself or how the brain connects um, different cells to each other and how that influences function in the body. And so one of the first things that I always talk with students about when they say, what major should I go if I want to go into the health field? And I say, well, it really can be any major um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so don't get so caught up in the degree that you choose or the degree path that you're taking. Um, there's a lot of experiences that you can have within any degree in the STEM world um, that allows you to still be able to explore you know, a path, um, particularly that can have influence in health and medicine. And I think that's probably... When I think about where the most like fundamental questions come from, that's usually it. Um, the next questions always come along with, well, what experiences do I need to to go be, you know, uh, to go into graduate school or to be a professor or to go into industry or to go into consulting or patent law? I mean, there's so many directions that you can go with a STEM degree, and so a lot of students, I think. Um, are often curious and interested about what's the best thing for them to do at that time to ensure that they can be successful in that career path. Um, and my, my most common answer is that there's not a right way to do that, um, that it's very independent. Uh, uh, it's very dependent on the individual and what you have access to and what you have opportunity to do, but also just what you're interested in. Um, and there's so many examples of people taking nonlinear paths to get to, you know, wherever they are today and doing the career they're doing. And so I usually just try and get students to think about the fact that um, nothing you do at any given time is going to set, fix the trajectory you're on. Um, there's always ways to adapt from that. And there's always ways to, particularly in high school and when you're an undergraduate, to explore. And it's perfectly okay to explore as many options as possible so you can, you know, sort of figure out what interests you and excites you the most, and then use that as like a springboard to make decisions about particular experiences going forward. 
Thanks for that, Elizabeth. And if it's not obvious damnation, Elizabeth has a lot of insight in this area. If, if you want to connect with Elizabeth, you can go to the show notes on stemonfire.com. And her LinkedIn uh, link will be there. You click on that and uh, you know do a connection with Elizabeth, start building that network. And if you have any pointed questions, just just ask her. I'm sure she'd be happy to help. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would love to help. And I also um, will say that I have on my on my website for my lab, so it's just nancelab.com, um, I have actually a link to a lot of opportunities for high school students and um, for undergraduates who are interested in exploring STEM fields um, and, and also um, a lot of emphasis in applications in health and medicine through summer research experiences or summer programs both in the U.S. and abroad um, that might just give you an opportunity to get your foot in the door um, and something. And so I, I started building that list actually while I was in grad school from mentoring high school students um, who were always very interested and very excited. And I found that it was hard to sometimes find these opportunities online. Uh, and so I started compiling this list and it's just um, a link on my on my website under our research page that provides um, at all levels, high school, undergraduate, graduate, um, postdoc, and faculty various opportunities for summer experience or experiences or broad experiences that might be interested uh, might be of interest to your audience. You can check the show notes. All the links will be in there or just search for Elizabeth Nance on the web. And we are going to go to an aha moment, Elizabeth. Could you tell us a story and how you had an aha moment and how you turned that into success? Yeah. So um, when I was starting my PhD, I actually was doing uh, work in a lab that was focused on mucus. And um, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So um, you might wonder why I'm mentioning mucus when most of our work now and my past training has been focused on the brain. But when I was in this lab for my PhD, there were a lot of important insights that we actually got from studying the ability of drugs to penetrate the mucus layer um, that actually translated quite well to limitations that are faced by drugs um, that are trying to be effective in the brain. And so um, just so your audience knows, mucus, obviously, we I think most of us are fairly well aware that it's this very sticky uh, substance that obviously, like when you're, you have a stuffy nose, there's a lot more of it. When you have a respiratory infection, you get a lot more mucus. Um, it's usually villainized by like the Mucinex commercials um, so that might that might be how most people are aware of it. But mucus is actually this fantastic um, biological fluid that's so good at keeping many foreign uh, foreign entities from um, getting into your body. So if you think about the bacteria, the air particulates, the pathogens, anything that you could potentially be inhaling or getting on your eyes um, or swallowing, all of those things um, could get into your body, but oftentimes they don't because you have a mucosal layer that coats your eyes, that coats your lungs, that coats the GI tract. Um, and without this mucosal layer, those cells that line all of those systems would be exposed to everything we're exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. And so this is a great defense system for your body, but it's not so good if you need to get a drug across it to treat the underlying organ because a drug is going to run into the same problems that a bacteria or a virus or a particulate in the air is going to run into. And so my um, lab that I was in for my PhD had focused a lot on how do you design in particular nanoparticles to be able to overcome or get through this very sticky muc uh, mucosal layer. And if you could design nanoparticles to do that, you could actually increase the ability of a drug 
to penetrate through that layer and to distribute in the tissues that were protected by that mucosal layer. And that would increase their overall effect and ability to actually treat the underlying disease. And so when I was looking at clinical trial literature for diseases in the brain, we had noticed that there were many drugs that had failed, not because they were necessarily bad drugs, but because they couldn't actually get to where they needed to get to in the brain, even if they were locally administered. So even if they were directly injected into the brain, the drugs still weren't very good at actually getting to the injured cells or to the sick cells in the brain. And so when thinking about kind of what had happened with the mucus history of drugs being, a, you know, in a, not being able to get through, we started thinking, well, what if the inability of drugs to actually be effective in the brain is because they don't have this ability to penetrate because they're somehow getting stuck or adhered or um, immobilized or hindered in their path to getting to the cells of interest. And so we began exploring the ideas of controlling properties of nanoparticles, so things like their size and what they're coated with, so that they could be inert from their surroundings in the brain environment. Um, and this was actually unique to that field at the time because most people had only focused on getting something to the brain, not actually through the brain to sites of interest. And it's sort of a nuanced thing, but um, we were kind of the first to show that the inability to penetrate within the brain was actually a very significant barrier to effectiveness of drugs. And since then, we basically built from that one moment in my PhD, in my first year of my PhD, from the you know mucus perspective, have now built um, ten years of training and about five years of work in my own lab based on this concept of trying to understand how things could be better at penetrating once they get into a tissue or once they get into an organ, um, rather than just focusing on getting it to the organ itself. So Elizabeth, what I'm going to say there is, you're the first person I've ever heard said that wonderful mucus. So. <laughs> I know I talk, so I teach, um, I teach, a, one of the, the core courses in chemical engineering at, at the university of Washington and it's focused on fluid mechanics. Um, so how things transport, how they move around. And I always give them this example, um, which always grosses them out in class, but I think in kind of like a delightful way of mucus being this really fascinating fluid in our body that is so good at responding to like when you blink your eye, um, you know, you have a mucosal layer on the surface of your eye and it's actually aids the ability to blink because it pretty much shears in response to stress and becomes more liquid light. So it then can be cleared off the eye. I mean, it's so, it's such a cool um, fluid. I have a very, a very immense appreciation for it. We have not found mucus in the brain. So I never was able to connect those two, um, those two things together in my PhD. So I was the only person for a while in my PhD lab that wasn't doing anything on mucus and was doing, you know, doing work on the brain. Um, but there was a lot of correlations we can make between the two. And through that, I've, I've got a very, um, as you can tell, profound appreciation <laughs> for, for mucus and what it, what it does for us on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> Yes, I have a, a new appreciation for uh, for mucus, <laughs> and I will never forget that. And and Elizabeth, we're going to head to the lightning round. Uh, are you ready? Yes, I am absolutely ready. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? So this comes from my dad, and he still tells me it whenever I'm going to give a talk or doing something that makes me anxious. Um, he always tells me to be myself, to take a deep breath, and to smile. And a personal habit that contributes to your success. So one thing I do daily is I keep track of what I need to do and what I've done. And I do this in a variety of forms I've optimized over the years, which makes me a lot more efficient with time. Um, more broadly, though, I always try and seek feedback on things, whether it's 
something I write or a lecture I give or how I'm mentoring. And that's something that I think has been really helpful is just being willing to seek feedback um, and and sort of implement that feedback as as I feel is best fit with what I want to accomplish. All right, Elizabeth, and you've you've provided a lot of value so far, and we are going to ask you for one more for the parting piece of guidance before we say goodbye. Yeah, so I think the one thing that I can encourage people to do is just get out there and try stuff. I don't think um, you have to know exactly what you want to do in life, like right at that moment, or even in the next few years, and getting out and trying things and being open to experiences and investing yourself fully in those experiences can really help you kind of see what interests you and what you're passionate about and help find places where you're going to do, you know, meaningful work that motivates you. And with that, Elizabeth, we will say goodbye. Thank you for having me, and thanks to your audience for listening. You're welcome, Elizabeth. And I hope you enjoyed that chat today with Elizabeth. You can head over to stemonfire.com, subscribe to the email list to keep up with the latest happenings, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast player, and please share it with a friend. Tune in next week where we talk with Matt, who is a technical solutions specialist at Google. Until next time, I hope this chat has helped ignite your passion towards a STEM degree.